fighting for freedom every day. Republicans right now, the conservatives, which unfortunately, this is what we have to do every time, even after a vote where people are sick and tired of the establishment, they're sick and tired of the squeezy, middle-of-the-road, squishy kind of Republican rhinos, and we vote conservatives in, then we have to fight tooth and nail in D.C. to actually be heard within the Republican Party. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome into the program. It is your pre-Friday celebration. Hey, what's up? The greatest day of the entire week, man. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. We are almost there for the Friday and the wrapping up of another week. Although tomorrow may be a little wild, if you know what I mean. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. So welcome into it. It is the Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier, broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country, multiple radio stations and TV and podcasting, live streaming, however you watch or listen to the show. It's always great to have you, your millennial general, reporting for duty like we do every single day. We have so much to cram in today. I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it, but we'll do our darndest like usual. Dr. Jonathan Howard will be on at the bottom of the hour. We're going to continue our conversation with our 2020 hindsight of COVID-19. And what we learned from it, and if we do go down the road of another pandemic, will we make the same mistakes all over again? From conversation of the mask wearing and herd immunity and vaccines and isolation and... So, did we actually learn our lessons and what came of it and how did we come out better or worse at the end of the day? He's got his latest book, We Want Them Infected. Oh my, that sounds a little scary. So we'll talk with Dr. Howard coming up at the bottom of this hour. I did not know that when you go on a late night talk show, like if you watch any of those, and I'm not quite, I don't really watch any of them, but uh, anybody watch any of the new late night talk shows now that they're back after the writer's strike and you have uh, Stephen Colbert, a.k.a. Stephen Colbert for the late show that took over from um, David Letterman, which was really upsetting, honestly. Let's be honest about that. I was really looking forward to Craig Ferguson, who did the late, late show afterwards. And in his contract, he was supposed to take over David Letterman. And that was the only late night talk show guy that I watched. I enjoyed Craig Ferguson. He's still one of my favorite comedians. I had the privilege to be able to see him just about a month or so ago uh, with Mrs. Voice of Reason and I's 11th year wedding anniversary. We, he was in Wichita. And we got to see him uh, just about a month ago. So that was really cool. I've always wanted to see him, but he was supposed to take over that show. But CBS did not, <laughs> didn't like him at all. So they went with none other than Stephen Colbert a.k.a. Stephen Colbert from the Colbert Rapport, where he did the political comedy before. And back in the day, he was actually kind of funny because he tried to stay middle of the road. Now he doesn't even try to hide it, man. And his new show isn't any better than what the old show was before the writer's strike, and it makes me very upset. But if you're a guest on a late-night talk show, would you make fun of yourself? Or would you try to promote whatever you're trying to promote? And would you try to... You know, dress up a little bit. Would you try to make yourself look kind of nice? Because apparently this guy, man, he has no class and he doesn't care about class in any way, shape or form. And yes, I'm talking about the man himself, none other than Senator from the great state of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, as he is out there on late night talk shows. Yes, in his hoodie and in his shorts out there talking about apparently himself. Oh, yeah, he took some jabs at himself over the week, or, uh, just a couple days ago. <laughs> Is it awkward to be in the Capitol and then run into people that you have put up a devastating meme about because you've got excellent meme game, but then you have to see these people in the cafeteria? Uh, no, it's... It, <laughs> you all should need to know that 
America is not sending their best and brightest, you know, to Washington, D.C. Mm. Yes. <laughs> like, sometimes, sometimes you literally just can't believe, like, you know, these people are making the decisions that are, you know, determining the, the government here. It's, it's, it's actually scary, too. And <laughs> That audio from Fox News, by the way, I don't know why they put the music underneath there, but there it is, John Fetterman. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we are not sending the best and brightest to Washington, D.C. It is very scary, actually, that these individuals are the ones deciding the fate of our nation. Yes, I would have to actually agree with John Fetterman on that one, that we are not sending our best and brightest, him being the prime example of that. It's the fact that he's the one deciding the fate of the nation and making policy for the nation. So help us God. So there he is. I didn't know. (laughs) I didn't know that you could talk about yourself in such a negative manner on national TV for a late night talk show. Well done, John Fetterman. You now sunk to another new low in this country. Welcome. We got a lot to talk about today. We have the latest out of Israel. There is a scary call for action, a call to action that's going to potentially happen tomorrow all over the world. Are you prepared for that one as Hamas is uh, going after everybody around the world who disagrees with their radical ideology? So we have that. We have the House Speaker vote that we'll touch on briefly as well today because apparently we're not going to have a Speaker's vote until early next week. The Republican caucus still trying to rally the unification call around Steve Scalise and he, it's not going well, I guess, or they just don't have enough quite yet, or he wants to meet with each and every individual member of the House Republican Party to make sure that we're good to go with a vote next week. I'm not sure why that needs to happen right now, and it's a little sad that we, again, are showing such lack of unity within the party. So we'll touch on that briefly, but really, I have to ask you a question today. Because I think that we've seen an evolution in the nation, obviously. We've seen a lot of things change since the beginning of the nation. But the American dream, what does it mean to you? What does the American dream actually mean to you? And if you're talking about um, uh, excelling, flourishing, doing well under the American dream, what is that American dream? What does that mean to you? Because I think we've seen a bit of an evolution or de-evolution, if you want to put it that way, in the American dream on what that actually entails. At the beginning of this nation, the American dream was, again, the streets are paved with gold, the opportunity for everybody. You have freedom to live your life, to build your business, to expand your family, to actually have property rights, to actually not be persecuted for the things that you believe in, to actually live the American dream that is freedom, liberty, and common sense. That's what the American dream was, or at least that's what it was supposed to be. That was the vision of America, which is why when we sing the national anthem, when we say our Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, that we understand that the government can't give that to us and that we're never a perfect nation, but the idea, the symbolism of what this nation was supposed to represent, that's that dream. That's what it was. That was the whole idea and the concept of this nation. And I don't know, I think it's still there, don't get me wrong, I think that that vision, that American dream is still there, but it's much more difficult today, obviously with regulations and the government and taxes, and we can go down the list of all the things that are infringing upon that American dream, but it is still there, which is why we see a massive amount of people trying to come to this nation still. But I think that American dream has evolved a little bit to what the iconic way is to be successful in this nation was working hard creating something, building it with your bare hands, starting from scratch and seeing where it goes and flourish, to, I really don't want to do that, so I'm going to sue people. 
Remember that one? I mean, that's really been the thing for the last decade or so. Is uh, You gave me really hot coffee. I knew it was coffee, but I didn't know it was going to be that hot, so I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to make a million-dollar piece of litigation, and I'm going to get a settlement, and I'm going to be rich, and that's my new American dream is just sue somebody, create some type of lawsuit, and make lots and lots of money. The new American dream, to live off of somebody else's success based on suing them because you were uh, harmed in some way, shape, or form. That was stage number two, I think, of trying to steer us away from the American dream. There's now two that are simultaneously going on right now that I think we need to deal with. While the suing is still there, while the American dream, the original American dream is still there, there's two more that I think we need to add on to this American dream vision. One of them is, of course, coming into this country illegally because if you just waltz in, apparently, through an app and you get a two-minute screening from our southern border, then you get shipped off to whatever city. You get food stamps. You get housing. You get the job. You get whatever you need. No questions asked on what your intentions are. If you don't show up to your immigration court hearing, then they spend the next seven years trying to track you down. They reschedule it for 10 years out, and we start the entire process all over again. So apparently that's the new American dream is just welcome aboard. Here's your free government handouts, which is what Democrats have tried to create again over the past few decades. But there's another one happening right now, too, that I think is one of the more devastating to the original American dream that everybody's trying to pursue. And that is, of course, and you're going to laugh at me because I like to talk about this quite a bit, but that is, of course, the ongoing strikes and joining labor unions that are trying to manipulate the private market. Now, (laughs) I know, I know what you're thinking. Andy, why are we going down this road again? Well, apparently everybody just wants to strike. They don't want to work anymore. They don't want to try to negotiate their own wages. They don't want to negotiate based on their own abilities, based on their own experience, based on their own tenure, based on what they bring to the table. They don't want to do that anymore. Apparently, today's new American dream is just to go out, just join a labor union and go on strike to try and manipulate that market to raise it above their value. As you're aware, the uh, UAW, United Auto Workers, are still striking. And in fact, they've escalated it enough to where now they're uh, striking at a Kentucky plant as of yesterday afternoon, where they're now striking with another 1,800 workers or so down there at a plant that could do some drastic hits on the Ford company with that plant. Which, again, just a refresher here, they have not changed their negotiations, even though the president of the UAW has admitted that what they're requesting and what they're fighting for is well outside of their means, is ridiculously absurd and out of control, but yet they have not changed that or made it more reasonable. That is the average pay being at near $50 an hour. That is having automatic pay increases during inflation. Whenever inflation hits, that is uh, making the same wage for everybody instead of a tiered system from those that have been in the system and compared to new hires. They want it all across the board. And, of course, they want their protections when it comes to the EVs because they know that they're shooting themselves in the foot by trying to keep all these workers when the industry's changing after supporting politicians that are trying to kill off the industry. So all of their demands are absolutely irrational, but yet they continue to fight for the same thing. There apparently is now, however, a new round of strikes that are going on or walking out as there are multiple stores of Walgreens across the nation with pharmacists that are walking out and striking, advocating for better wages. 
I mean, again, instead of saying, hey, I'm the pharmacist, I'm like the smartest cookie around here, I have to count certain medications, I could literally kill somebody if I give someone the wrong medication, there's a high level of insurance policy that we need to be concerned about here for pharmacies, but yet I want better pay. You're not going down that road, you're just saying, I'm done, I'm walking out and I'm going to strike. And according to CNN and the Sun.com, they say that there are now hundreds of customers trying to get their pharmacy pills, medications to like, I don't know, survive that aren't able to do it. As there are hundreds of stores that are closing down their pharmacies because, well, there's no pharmacist there to do the dealings. Here's the problem is that while there are strikes going on within these pharmacies of Walgreens, the company of Walgreens says that they are losing money. They're struggling to keep things open, and they're planning on shutting near 150 locations nationwide of Walgreens in general because, well, they don't have enough money and that they're losing money, especially when it comes to those pharmacies. So let me get this straight. Again, trying to rail it in and beat the dead horse here for a minute, that we want to raise our wages and raise our benefits, possibly outside of the means of what the private sector can afford for you to pay, even with a business that's going to shut doors in general because they can't afford the operating expenses, and yet you're going to fight for the better wages. I'm still curious on how this makes sense in any way, shape, or form. This is exactly what the UAW is doing. This is what the pharmacists at Walgreens is doing. This is what the nurses strikes are doing across the nation and so many other industries that are like, hey, the best thing to do, pun intended here, the best thing to do for them is to join some socialist collective bargaining organization fight for better wages, and then not work until they get me everything that I want because the American dream now is apparently the ultimate temper tantrum. And that's what we get to look forward to with the new adults coming into the workforce. Oh, how lucky we are moving forward, aren't we? This is The Voice of Reason. Stay right here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. You know, I guess it makes sense with this new American dream called the temper tantrum of 2023, or I guess it's been happening for a few years now, but it's getting worse now. The temper tantrums of 2023, the new American dream. It makes sense because there's a new workforce, a new working age coming up, and they were the ones that had the helicopter parenting. They were the ones who got the participation trophies. And yes, of course, I'm talking about my generation, unfortunately, the millennial generation, that they got everything that they wanted. So this generation that's going into college, coming out with $50,000 of student loan debt, <laughs> I'm not, uh, well, yeah, I'm part of that, I guess. I'm walking out with 50000 I guess it was even more for one stint, but by golly, we're working on that one, chipping it away. No, Joe Biden! I don't want your free handouts. Thank goodness I'm going to take care of it all myself. But those participation trophy ones that feel like they should walk out of college and come into the workforce making $90 an hour, uh, that's their mindset. And if they don't get it, then they have no problem doing this quote-unquote collective bargaining, not to prove their own individual worth on how much they bring to the table, but that everybody needs to be making the same amount. It definitely rallies and, and drives home the concept of the equal opportunity versus the equal outcome that we're facing in this nation because they want the equal outcome for everybody, whether you have 30 years of experience and doing a very good job and you're an expert in the industry, whether you had 30 years of experience, but yet 
you're just lazy because you don't want to go and do the work and you don't know what the hell you're doing. Everybody has those in their work industry. You know who you are. Or they're the newbies that are coming in that have no clue what's going on and are just trying to feel their way through it. Or the newbie that's coming in that understands it and it just clicks and they get it and they just run with it. There is an entirely different mindset for all four of those scenarios. And yet we want to pay all of them the exact same amount. And I am not okay with that. But the American dream today is not to fight for your individual rights based on your own experience, because I think for many, maybe it's very scary to fight for your own individual and think about how much you're worth, which is why we see this movement of not equality, but equity. Equity, you are all worth the same, and that's the only way the government can handle it because they have to look at the macro, not the micro. They can't micromanage everybody, so it's all about equity. And you as a collective, whether it's human society as a whole, whether it's a certain identity politics with a skin color or gender or relations or whatever religion, that you are now part of an equity the value that the government has set to you or that you think that you are worth and that you're going to continue to fight for. And that's the new American dream, apparently. Don't look at it as the individual, but look at it as that collective. It's very scary and it's very sad, and we need to change that narrative. Although I will say optimistically right now that union membership down uh, across the country is on the decline, and it has been for a while because I think people are starting to realize, like, wow, It's not really helping me at all. I'm just going to go do it myself. That is really good news. Speaking of temper tantrums, by the way, we do see the Republican Party still throwing their temper tantrum about wanting to be the purists one way or the other, which is why we can't have a Speaker of the House vote today or tomorrow, but we have to do it next week because we apparently have to still, quote unquote, win over certain caucus members to prove that Steve Scalise can be that next Speaker of the House. He spoke earlier today on he's wanting to meet with each and every one of those caucus members. We had a very constructive two-and-a-half-hour-long meeting, I had asked our conference chair, Lee Stefanik, that we get everybody in a room together, uh, not individual meetings. I'm not cutting any deals. I want to meet in front of all of our members, answer every question, and just continue to work through to unite and bring our conference together and address issues as they come up. And obviously issues have come up over the last week about the whole uh, process of how we get our conference back on track. The good news is our support continues to grow. Uh, we're continuing to work to narrow the gap, and that's going on, and we're going to continue the meetings. All right, Republicans, I'm going to try and help you out here just for the PR imaging standpoint from this while you're trying to rally your troops. Again, you better come out and vote in unison for Kevin or for Steve Scalise at the end of the day. But here's, we're trying to help you. The media is building up this hype like a drama Kim Kardashian episode, not because you guys actually can't get along. Use that narrative. Run with it, baby, because we have this to. Is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Reason meets radio. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier. So there's apparently some bad news bears for the Biden administration as the latest interview with one of the Hamas leaders with the ongoing conflict over in Israel right now was doing an interview on Russia today and made a comment saying that they have been planning this attack on Israel for over two years now, directly after the pulling out of Afghanistan from the United States. 
Oh, mon Dieu. So, we have the Biden administration that said everything was going to be hunky-dory. Don't worry, the terrorists won't be able to recollect themselves and rebuild themselves from scratch. We have them pummeled. Everything's all great. We're going to leave a lot of money. We're going to leave a bunch of weapons. We're going to leave a bunch of tanks. We're going to leave a bunch of... <laughs> Don't worry about it. We're just going to go ahead and pull out. And apparently, they have been orchestrating this attack since then, waiting for the opportune moment. It goes back to the conversation we've had for the last couple of days about the weakness in leadership where there was the vulnerability in Israel with the ongoing attacks against Benjamin Netanyahu because there is a sect that just does not like him and want him out, which is why we see the shakiness there. And we see the weakness, obviously, in our own leadership here that is a cause for concern with an issue that could arise tomorrow. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But I want to shift gears from that just a bit and get into our latest in What's Trending. What's Trending Today. So... There is, we are, we are, we're continuing our ongoing coverage of our 2020 hindsight, if you want to put it that way, from the COVID-19 pandemic. What happened? What did we learn? Did things pan out the way they were intending to? And if this, God forbid, ever happened again, would we go down the same rabbit holes that we did before? And that just covers the entire gamut from uh, the mask wearing, the lockdowns, the social distancing. Remember that term? The new norm that we have, the great reset that was being pushed, and vaccines and everything else down the road. Where are we today? And did misinformation, did lies, did manipulation out there cause a lot of the chaos that we're in today? Happy to have on the program. He's author of the book, We Want Them Infected. How the failed quest for herd immunity led doctors to embrace the anti-vaccine movement and blinded Americans to the threat of COVID. It's Dr. Jonathan Howard on here. John, how are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, looking forward to chatting with you here. With all the misinformation, I mean, I remember all the way back to when we first announced that there was a global pandemic, there was a virus that was spreading all over the place that we just hit here in the United States, and that we need to stay home, that your business may not be an essential business. We just need to isolate in two weeks to slow the spread. That's how this all started. Um, didn't quite turn out that way, did it? Well, this was everyone's first pandemic, and a lot of people got a lot of stuff wrong. And it was a brand new virus, and it had it took us uh, in many unpredictable ways with a lot of twists and turns. And I think we have to be very careful to distinguish misinformation from things that people just got wrong in the heat of the moment. A lot of people of good faith, doing the best that they could, made mistakes, and that's to be expected. Um, my book is about people who I think spread purposeful misinformation. Well, let's talk at the let's go back to the very beginning of this. When did we start, do you think, going astray with some of that misinformation? Well, I, I think that uh, we can trace this back into March 2020. Uh, some very famous doctors made some very wrong predictions that the flu would kill many more people than COVID, uh, that uh, all attempts to control the spread of the virus would be much worse than the virus itself. And these voices were ubiquitous presences, presences uh, in the media. And some people, some of them, uh, corrected their errors, which is to their credit, but I think a a lot of doctors continued to minimize the virus throughout as new variants emerged uh, and as the death toll piled up. Yeah. Not to throw any names out there, but does Dr. Fauci fall into that category at all? I mean, he made errors, that's for sure. I don't think that he really underestimated the virus. Um, I, I do include him in the category of people who I think made good faith mistakes. I mean, this man had 
10,000 public pronouncements and not all of them aged well, that's for sure. Um, but but I'm happy to, <laughs> to name names. They're not as famous as Dr. Fauci, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of the confusion came right at the beginning when at first we heard, uh, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Dr. Fauci, and he was talking about some of the recommendations of staying home and originally said, we don't need to wear masks. Obviously, a basic cloth mask is not going to stop it. The molecules are way too small for COVID. It's not going to do any good to, I don't know, about through that summer, we're advocating for one or two or three masks to wear at the same time because that's going to stop this. When, you know, I don't know if the science changed, I don't know if the understanding changed, I don't know if just the propaganda changed, but that was just one of the examples where people were so confused, I think we just kind of threw our hands up and said, I'm just not going to listen to any of this because they told us not to wear a mask and now they want us to wear three of them. What the heck's going on here? Yeah, so I think that, and I do have that mistake in my book, um, I I think that he wanted to... uh, save masks for people like myself, who was working at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and was surrounded uh, by COVID and people were dying left and right. And that includes some people, some doctors and nurses that I know. And we were using masks that were supposed to be worn once. We were wearing them the entire week. So I think that he was trying to preserve masks for us. So his intentions were good. But yeah, it sort of set a stage that people were confused about what to do. Yeah. Again, I don't think that is the biggest problem with our pandemic. I don't think, but for that statement, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. But it wasn't a, it wasn't his best moment, that's for sure. Sure. Uh, let's talk about herd immunity. That was another conversation that was early on in the pandemic, is that if we hit like 80% herd immunity, then we can get back to normal if everybody's at least exposed to it and have at least been able to uh, wear the mask or take the vaccine. Well, the vaccine wasn't really out by then yet, but at least just be exposed to this, then That way we can get back to normal because we've hit the herd immunity and now society has an immunity to this thing. Did that theory pan out the way that it was intended? Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't. And that's where the title of the book comes from. We want them infected. Uh, Those words came from an epidemiologist in the Trump administration by the name of Dr. Paul Alexander, who, along with many famous doctors, none of whom treated COVID patients, formulated a plan to get rid of the virus by spreading the virus. The idea was that if 200 or so million uh, healthy, uh, young, unvaccinated Americans contract COVID, we would reach herd immunity and the virus would go away. Though, of course, humanity has never before reached herd immunity to a virus without vaccines. And you can only reach herd immunity for a virus where one infection or one, you know, some vaccination leads to permanent robust immunity, which sadly doesn't seem to be the case for COVID for this virus. Yeah. Now that we're into however many different variants of the virus and we have a new outbreak and now even today, I mean, with the beginning of the school year this year, we have school districts starting to put mask mandates back in place again for children because of concerns of some of these new ones that were coming out of Canada or other places. Um, where are we today? And if it is a new quote unquote norm virus that's going to be out there, have we hit that herd immunity, so to speak? And are we able to tackle the issue better now than what we were in the past? Well, we haven't hit herd immunity. We do have herd immunity for diseases like measles and chickenpox. Uh, and un, for example, children are not vaccinated against measles for the first year of their life. However, uh, the average baby uh, is, is living a normal baby life uh, with its parents is probably unlikely to contract measles. That's because we have herd immunity. You can still have 
outbreaks of measles where you have pockets of unvaccinated children. Uh, but that isn't the case for COVID. A, a unvaccinated a, a, a baby uh, uh, living a normal baby life, there's a very good chance that they will get COVID, uh, unfortunately. Um, in terms of where we are, obviously, in many ways, we're in a better place than we were three and a half years ago. I'm sitting in my office at Bellevue Hospital, and had you been here in April 2020, uh, again, the whole hospital was just deluged with COVID patients. This was true for every New York City hospital, and obviously this most hospitals experienced some version of this throughout the pandemic. Um, so in some ways, we're at a better place. Uh, the, the morgues are no longer overflowing with COVID patients, but it's come at a horrible cost. Uh, over a million Americans are dead, millions more are injured. And uh, although I think someone who gets COVID today is probably unlikely to die from it, that doesn't mean that it's completely harmless. And some people are still dying every day. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking with Jonathan Howard, author of the book, We Want Them Infected. Uh, let's go to some of the treatments and some of the medications. I mean, there was a large, obviously, I think it turned more political than what it should have been. But a lot of the potential treatments for this, either while we were working on a vaccine or thereafter the vaccine of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And we'll always remember, you know, President Trump at that time talking about hydroxychloroquine and how that could potentially help people. And then it turned out to where even if we mentioned that name, probably still may get bumped off of YouTube again on uh, today for mentioning that name, that uh, all of a sudden it's medical misinformation. How dare you even consider hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin? Uh, and how dare you do that? It's only a vaccine that's going to solve this. Do you think that got a little bit too politicized and confused again? A lot of the mass um, consumers, a lot of the mass population here about what's actually going to keep us healthy? Well, Almost every aspect of the pandemic got politicized. I can tell you that if someone took hydro hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, I can probably tell you where they stand on various issues such as abortion, gun control, Black Lives Matter, trans rights, you name it. Uh, you can sort of predict those things, which is unfortunate because whether a medication or works should be a matter of science right. uh, and evidence rather than a, a marker of tribal loyalty. And I can tell you the same with vaccines. If someone is completely up to date on their boosters, I probably have a good sense of how they're going to vote in their next, uh, next election, uh, which is a really sort of tragic thing. And I think a lot of people paid for it with their lives. A lot of people who died who didn't have to. Um, and with hydro hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, I mean, these were essentially kind of two drugs pulled at random, uh, I, I guess. We have thousands of drugs and the odds that they would kind of randomly work on this brand new virus just from a, a baseline set point were, were very, very low. Um, um, and But people are desperate to try anything. A lot of doctors tried those as well because we were just watching our patients die left and right, and there's no worse feeling in the world, as you can imagine. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, and everybody, like you said before, I mean, everybody it reacts to things differently, whether it's medications, viruses, vaccines, everybody with their own individual um I guess, immune system, their own bio system, whatever they have, that it, they, everybody reacts to things differently. So they're going to try these different things as well. Got to take a break real quick. It's Dr. Jonathan Howard. We Want Them Infected is the book. We'll continue this when we come back here for a Thursday on The Voice of Reason. Lots more to get to. Stay here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Last few minutes here on the program. Oh, how it flies right on by. It's always great to have you along for the ride. By the way, tomorrow, 
I want to give some time to remind you or warn you of this. Tomorrow, apparently, Hamas has encouraged a global day of jihad or a global day of terrorism, advocating for the attack all over the world. I know New York's on high alert and other places around the country are on high alert about what could potentially happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, Friday the 13th, which is my birthday, by the way, just throwing that out there. But uh, it's, we have some interesting things going on, and I don't want that to be the case. So let's pray that that doesn't happen tomorrow and that all this stuff is isolated with the extermination of uh, evil that is in the world going on right now in the Middle East. We'll talk some more about that a little bit later. Right now, though, we are hanging out with Dr. Jonathan Howard. He is author of the book, We Want Them Infected, as we talk about the 2020 hindsight and where we're at after the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wanted to save the last few minutes to talk about the obvious conversation about the vaccines that caused the biggest, I think, hubbub with the entire thing. Now, doctor, I, wa- I want to admit straight up front that I have not gotten any vaccine, and I have been one of those that did not want the vaccine, does not like the vaccine, or does not at least think that I need the vaccine personally. Uh, based on the fact that I'm a 34-year-old, relatively, uh, 35 tomorrow, but 34-year-old, relatively healthy guy. I boosted up my, you know, D3 and magnesium and zinc and boosted my immune system to be able to fight things off naturally and don't feel that I need a vaccine just because it's out there and available. Uh, From your perspective with this vaccine debate, do you think it's needed for every individual or just ones that uh, that are of the... Uh, I guess, demographic that are more vulnerable to it, immune compromised. I mean, this because this conversation has been blown, I think, way out of proportion when it comes to this vaccine issue. So it, it depends on how you ask the question, because is it needed? Well, you're here talking to me, right? You're still alive. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, thank God you did well without the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, but the people who, who made the decision and end up regretting it uh, aren't here to tell their story. So their voices are absent from this conversation. So a healthy 35-year-old uh, has a low risk from COVID death. That is true. Uh, but it's not zero. So I kind of liken it to if I was to drive from New York City to Boston to tomorrow. Uh, would I benefit from a seatbelt? Probably not. Odds are pretty low I would get into a car crash. I never have before, thank God, knock on wood. Uh, but I'm still going to wear my seatbelt because it kind of puts the odds in my favor. Um, I did see some young, healthy people die from COVID in April of 2020. Not many, not many. I'm not going to exaggerate a couple. And death is not the only bad outcome from COVID. So the vaccine is not perfect. It's not a panacea. It has side effects. It just increases the odds of a good outcome. And you're a healthy 35-year-old, 35 tomorrow, happy birthday. Um, there are about 4 million people your age, uh, not quite, are Americans your age. And mul- not all of them are healthy, but let's say two-thirds of them are. You know, But multiply uh, a low risk, which you have, times 4 million people your age, it began, begins to add up to a not insignificant number of dead Americans. So around 40,000 people under the age of 45, a little bit more, I have died of COVID, which is about how many people we lost in the Vietnam War, not quite as many. And you probably wouldn't minimize that. You probably wouldn't say, hey, very few people died in the Vietnam War. And that's about how many young people we lost to COVID. The vast majority would still be alive had they been vaccinated. I mean, I'm not saying they. a lot of them died 
in 2020 before the vaccines were available. But, but had had vaccines been available the day COVID arrived on our shore, the vast majority of them would still be alive. And that's not an insignificant number. Um, and even if it only saves 100 lives uh, of people your age, I don't know. To me, that's not an insignificant number. If 100 people die in terrorist attacks tomorrow <laughs> because of what you just promoted, um, or because of the, the news that you just shared, you wouldn't brush that off. You wouldn't say, eh, it's only 100 Americans, right? We'd be talking about that for days and weeks and months, as we should. That's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Last question for you. we got about 30 seconds left here as we wrap up. But uh, when it comes to, again, the conversation, the censorship that we've seen from social media, from a lot of that conversation, from one side or the other, has that? do you think in the long term has harmed the conversation on medical practice and at least on what could help and save people's lives moving forward if we see another pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I am a fan of doctors and people just speaking out. I'm certainly not a fan of government censorship. Social media companies are private companies. They have the right to run their platforms how they see. Um, But I am a fan of people not being silent in the face of medical misinformation. And I think a lot of my profession was a little bit too cowardly in doing so. There it is, Dr. Jonathan Howard. We want them infected. Go check out the book on Amazon, other places as well. You can go visit his website at jonathanhowardmd.com as well. Doctor, we appreciate the time very much, my friend. And love to chat again soon. Thanks for the questions. I appreciate hey, it. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. There it is. Show's all though. Podcast up in just a little bit. Until then, we're back at it again on a Friday. On Friday the 13th, my most favorite day of the year. Or whenever it falls on a Friday, because that's just awesome. Until then, be your own voice of reason. Be that catalyst for change. This is The Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.